kind of just seamlessly transitioning down to the sermon. Back in 2009, this happened on, the, on a very large scale, inter- internationally. Um, this is the story where Richard and Mayumi Heen released a giant flying saucer-shaped helium balloon into the sky. Do you remember this? Giant in, in Colorado. And then they called 911 to report that their son, whose name was Falcon, was in the balloon flying precariously across the sky. So the, do you remember this? The, in 2009, the news, it was an international story. It was on the news. And they said, it's the bubble boy. He's in the sky. He's attached to this thing. And everyone is freaking out about it. Uh, and then to make things worse, someone, a spectator in this whole situation, saw something fall out of the balloon. And then they thought little Falcon had fallen you know, into, into the brush or into the trees, possibly to his death. So finally, the balloon uh, landed about 12 miles away from where it was launched. And there, was, there ended up being a, a ground search with search and rescue personnel and police and even the military looking for little Falcon in the woods. Well, Falcon was not in the woods. Falcon was in his parents' attic. Um, and they ended up going on Larry King and like Wolf Blitzer and stuff. But basically, the, the, this little guy, Falcon, he's a six-year-old kid. Larry King's asking him, no, so, so what happened? And this is where they, they messed up. They told their kid what they were doing. And a six-year-old cannot keep it to himself. So he looks, he looks and he says, you can still find these clips online, I believe. You guys said that um, we did this for the show. And it turns out the mom and dad had ulterior motives in this whole situation. Um, when they had sounded that alarm about Falcon, you know, they weren't really worried parents in the least. They were, it's a, it was a publicity stunt for a show they were trying to launch. And, but, but it became like a a national story. You know, all of our compassion was sucked, sucked into it and, and the attention of the news cycle was on it for, for a time. And, uh, but in the end of the day, it was a publicity stunt. It was ulterior motives were what was happening. And the moral of the story is, of course, never tell your six-year-old what you're really doing if you're trying to trick somebody because <laughs> a six-year-old will, will tell the truth. Now, you know, the, the, it's not a feel-good story. It's, it's a sickening kind of story. And the moral of the story is that all of us were once again victims of someone else's insincerity and their emotional manipulation. And every time that happens in our society, whether it's in our personal life or in the, in the news cycle, our hearts become a little bit more guarded. They, our hearts move away from compassion and move towards a hardness of heart. Um, and that's just natural when, you, when there's insincerity flying around. Every time this stuff comes up, especially when it's the, the authorities are telling us something that isn't true. It really hurts our hearts. It hurts our ability to just think the best of people, which is what we're supposed to do as Christians, right? Um, you know, all, the, that, that's kind of like the, the disturbing thing. But the, another really disturbing trend is, you know, in this culture where documentaries are all the rage, Lately, they've been, they, there's been a trend of like documentaries about very high-profile Christian teachers and leaders who fall from grace. They, they are one way in their private life and with their closest circle, and then they appeared another way, and then it turns out they were insincere. It wasn't a, a good situation. There have been so many documentaries lately about churches or, or, or parachurch organizations or leaders, some of whom have been very near and dear to my heart and your hearts, who 
have fallen from grace. They've been unmasked. And, uh, and sometimes it's actually like people that just got caught up in sin. You know, that could happen to anybody. We understand that. We're Christians. Uh, but unfortunately, when you get to the root of some of these stories, it's a person with an unchecked ego problem who is not repentant. Yet they've led all these different people astray. And that's even worse than the, than the bubble boy story because, but the balloon boy story, because it's, our, it's Christians. It's Christian leaders who are being shown to be frauds. And that really hurts us too uh, because we, we begin to, um, you know, some of the trust we put in those people and the way that they've helped us in our life, we question it. And sometimes as a fallout of these scandals that, that are in the Christian world, people walk away from faith altogether. They have not, I don't want to be a part of that. It's all just because of the insincerity. And I think that is the, the, the most sad thing and maybe the definition of spiritual abuse, when a church or a parachurch organization or a Christian leader hurts the people that they are shepherd, supposed to be shepherding and exploits them and all these kinds of things, um, then those people will never seek another pastor again. They're like, no more. So when you get, when you get hurt in the church, where do you go for healing? Well, we should be able to go to the church for healing, but people don't go to the church. They're, they're cut off. It's a very cruel kind of thing. You know, as, as, as Americans, as I talked about this last, last week, as a fallen people, you know, we tend to distrust authority often, and many times that distrust is earned. But here's the thing. There is one whose motives are never insincere, who is never trying to fleece you or abuse you or exploit you, and that is God. God is really sincere. And when you read the Bible and he says something, don't take it with a grain of salt because he is utterly serious. Unlike almost any other person we can really point to, he is totally serious. With that in mind, think about John 3.16, this common verse. It says, this is inspired by the Holy Spirit. This is the word of God. It says, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. God's love for the world is, is completely sincere. It's completely truthful. And, uh, and God gave his son so that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. This is a promise of God. It's completely trustworthy. And nothing can, nothing can, can uh, throw shade on God's, uh, God's word. God does not just appear to be doing something in love only to later have it be something else he was going after. Um, that's a trait of sinful humanity, but not of God. God's motives are always pure, unpolluted by any hint of shadows. It says in 1 John, God is pure light. In him there is no darkness at all. The world and, and, and even uh, fallen people, we change like shifting shadows. And we, we can go from being a good place to being in a bad place. And you know, we, can, we can mistreat one another, even as Christians. You know, even though it shouldn't be that way. But God never does. In him, there's no darkness at all. James 3, 13 to 18, directly addresses this concept of God's wisdom and love versus human wisdom and love. And, and James encourages us not to get these two confused ever, to be very careful not to get God's love and human love twisted. It says in James three thirteen, who is wise and understanding among you? 
Let them show it by their good life, by deeds done in humility that comes from wisdom. But if you harbor bitter envy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast about it or deny the truth about it. Such wisdom does not come down from heaven, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where you have envy and selfish ambition, there you find disorder in every evil practice. Here's, here's God in verse 17. But the wisdom that comes from heaven is first of all pure, peace-loving, considerate, submissive, full of mercy and good fruit, impartial and sincere. Peacemakers who sow in peace reap a harvest of righteousness. So what's this verse saying to us? It's contrasting earthly wisdom with, with God's wisdom. And if you, if you know about biblical theology a little bit, when wisdom is talked about in the Old Testament, many people, you can almost substitute that word for Christ, for Jesus Christ, uh, as the wisdom of God. So this is personified wisdom. It says in this passage, if, if, a, if a person wants to show true wisdom and understanding, what should they do? It says, do it by actually living a good life. Um, a life of service and humility instead of walking around with ulterior motives. Um, don't live a life that's based on bitter envy and selfish ambition. S such earthly wisdom is so convoluted because it is actually based on selfish ambition. Um, even a Christian's selfish ambition, not on humble love like God's. And James says, wisdom like that smells earthly and unspiritual. And he goes as far as saying that this earthly wisdom can be called demonic. That's how wicked it, it can become. In contrast, God's wisdom from above, says in James, is first pure, pure, light with no darkness, then peace-loving, considerate of others, submissive to legitimate human needs, dripping with mercy and good fruit, fully impartial and sincere. God's, God's motives, unlike the motives of people, um, are always pure, considerate of our human weaknesses, offering real mercy to the person that comes to God, while at the same time being impartial and fully sincere. You know, God it says in, in, in the book of Acts, God is so impartial that he never shows favoritism, ever. God has no unconscious thoughts driving his behavior, like we do often. Jesus was the only fully sincere person who ever lived. Because Jesus was not only a man, but he was God in the flesh. So whenever Jesus said or did anything, his motives were pure, and they were out in the open. You can especially see this when Jesus is interacting with his disciples or the people he was uh, ministering to, that it was such a contrast, the way that he walked and moved around. Um, and I think that God's love and sincerity is revealed as very brightest in Christ. Jesus was the very heart of God in action in the world. And again, no biases, no favoritism, no unconscious biases um, drove Jesus, but only fully sincere desire to save men and women. We're going through this book, as I said, called Gentle and Lowly in our small groups and in our services, uh, which is based on Matthew eleven twenty-eight to 30, which is the only place in Scripture, according to Spurgeon, where Jesus describes his very heart 
And this is what it says. Matthew eleven twenty eight. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened. I will give you rest. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Fully sincere. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart. You will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Over the last two weeks, I've, I've preached on God's heart based on this passage. So I encourage you to listen to those sermons uh, to, to get this very solid truth into the soil of your heart. This is good, solid scripture. If you come to believe what Jesus is offering and believe that's sincere and believe that's for you, then the promise is, is, is huge. He's saying, come to me all who are weary and burdened, and there's no unconscious except for you, except for that person. No, everyone who's weary and burdened, regardless of how they got that way, come to me, and I will give you rest. Well, except for those people. No, for everybody. It's like, it's an amazing promise. Take my yoke upon you, learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart. I have no bad days. You will find rest for your souls, every one of you. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. In the second chapter of this book, Gentle and Lowly, um, Dane Ortland, the author, says, What we see Jesus claim with his words in Matthew eleven twenty nine, 29, we see him prove with his actions time and time again in all four Gospels. What he is, he does. He cannot act any other way. His life proves his heart. That's pretty, that's pretty amazing. Everything that God says, he then demonstrates in Christ. You can read, you can see God's heart in the way that he interacted with everybody. You know, we're once again face-to-face with the fact that God does not have ulterior or even unconscious motives like we do, but means everything he says and lives his life as God. I don't even know how to talk about it. Lives his eternity as God um, based on all the things that he believes and says all the time. Jesus being God in the flesh is the exact representation of God in his, in his God's personified wisdom in the Scripture. Exactly like God's wisdom, Jesus' love and wisdom is fully pure, completely sincere, without hint of shadows. And in Jesus, we see God's heart, gentle and humble, perfectly in his actions. So what does Jesus' heart in action look like? In a word... A big Greek word. I'm not even going to try to say it. It's like 42 words. Slach nisdomal. That sounds German. Um, this is a Greek word that appears in the Greek lexicon every time it talks about what drove Jesus' heart. It's where we get our word for compassion. What drove Jesus was Compassion. The definition in my, in my Bible dictionary said, to be moved as to one's bowels. Hence, to be moved with compassion. <laughs> Have compassion. Um, in, the, in the Bible in that time, the bowels were thought of as a seat of emotion in the body. And I guess even you, when you get, feel sick to your stomach from being emotional, I don't know if you've ever experienced that, where you just feel cut to the heart. Like your heart they, we say things like, my heart sunk. My, my stomach, there was all butterflies. Sometimes life just moves us. Um, we're moved with compassion. We have compassion manifest in our body. And this is what the scriptures say time and time again drove Jesus' ministry. A 
sincere compassion for the people he was ministering to. Now, of course, we're talking here about the gentle and lowly, the people that come to him seeking after him, not trying to trick him, not trying to, you know, like the Pharisees did, trying to catch him in his own words, trying to crucify him. You know, Jesus had stuff to say to those guys too. But for everyone that came to him in sincerity of heart, oneness of heart, and, and just a desire for, to be saved, to be reached out to, um, they found Jesus to receive them. Our human compassion, you know, it, it tends to lose its shine, you know, when we, when we become worn down, when we suffer compassion fatigue, people talk about. Um, after seeing so many images of war and death and suffering, you know, our hearts will often harden to it, just, just like, like a defense mechanism, right? Not a good thing, just a state, a state that's how, how it is for us. We can't take all that at once. Jesus' heart never did that. He never hardened his heart towards the sinners and sufferers around him just because there were so many of them. He never, never did it. He did, he did grow very tired. And he had to rest. That was in, in his body as a human being, but he never had to rest so that he could build up compassion again. It was always right there, fully sincere, fully caring. When Jesus saw a suffering person or just a sinner in need of salvation and grace, or even just someone who was, I will say, even partially sincere in seeking after Jesus, as some of the teachers of the law were, he felt the same level of compassion for that person every time. It's that word in the Greek. And this is another way in which God's heart is very different from ours. His heart is perfect and perfectly loves. Matthew 20, 29 to 34 this is going to be representative of Jesus' larger ministry. This is one of many, many stories that use this word for compassion in relation to Jesus doing miracles or saving people or what have you. So we're going to use this as a case study. Matthew 20, 29 to 34. As Jesus and his disciples were leaving Jericho, a large crowd followed him. Two blind men were sitting by the roadside, and when they heard that Jesus was going by, they shouted, Lord, son of David, have mercy on us. The crowd rebuked them and told them to be quiet. But they shouted all the louder, Lord, son of David, have mercy on us. Jesus stopped and called them. What do you want me to do for you? He asked. Lord, they answered, we want our sight. Jesus had compassion on them and touched their eyes. Immediately they received their sight and followed after him. This is a perfect example of God's loving, compassionate heart on display. Um, and it certainly is a contrast to our human uh, ideas of um, compassion. Jesus and his disciples are on their way. They're, they're on their way out. On their way out of uh, Judah. And a crowd is following along with Jesus, a crowd who are looking to see what he would do and say. And two blind men sitting on the roadside hear that Jesus is going by, so they shouted, Lord, Son of David, have mercy on us. And the crowd rebuked these two blind men. Maybe they were sick of walking by them. Maybe they'd seen them before. And they just were not only ignoring them, but rebuking them for calling out to Jesus. And the word rebuke in, in, the, in, the, um, in the Greek 
means sternly told. So coldly, sternly, silence. Shut up. But these men were in such great need that they didn't care about being rebuked by the disciples if it meant that maybe Jesus would overhear their plight. And they shout, Lord, Son of David, have mercy on us all the louder. It's interesting to me. uh, There's a big crowd following Jesus, also his disciples. Then two blind men who cannot see. His own disciples and his own followers who are in the crowd do not acknowledge Jesus as Messiah yet. Son of David is a term for the Messiah. But two blind people that can't even see correctly identify who Jesus is. So everyone else with all their, all their senses intact in and their hardened hearts, um, they, they missed out on the truth. And these two blind men, somehow they knew Jesus was the son of David. He's the Messiah that was to come. Their hope is in this truth. And they're the only ones that got it right of anybody. And Jesus stops what he's doing. He stops walking away. And the text says, he called them. Which is a very relational word. It was an invitation to a conversation. He, he called them not to get them to be quiet. But he called to them in an inviting way. And Jesus asks them, what do you want me to do for you? They say, Lord, We want our sight. And at this answer, Jesus had compassion on them. And he touched their eyes. And immediately they both received their sight and began to accompany Jesus as he and his disciples walked out of Jericho. So what does God's gentle and humble heart look like in action? Well, first, he hears people when they call to him, even in a crowd. He invites them into a conversation. Then he stops walking. Then he calls them. He asks them questions and he listens to their answers. And after this, he pours out compassion on them, after which they are touched and healed. This is God's heart in action. This is Jesus' compassion for sinners and sufferers like us. And this is only one of many places in the Gospels where Jesus is driven by this compassion, by the same exact pattern, compassion. When the, multi- when the multitude of people are hungry and thirsty who are following Jesus, uh, even during the dinner hour, you know, they, hadn't been, they hadn't been fasting for days, they were just hungry because it was dinner time. They hadn't eaten since breakfast. Jesus had compassion on them. He fed them miraculously with a few loaves and fish. It was Jesus' compassion that led up to the miracle of the feeding of the 5,000. He had perfect compassion for people that were just hungry because they missed a meal. It's pretty, pretty cool, <laughs> you know? Not only did he touch the blind, as in our passage today, but compassion also drove Jesus to touch contagious lepers of his day. Uh, people that had a transmittable skin defect that, could, that could, be, could be passed along to somebody else. And Jesus had compassion on them and touched them. Instead of Jesus getting sick, the lepers got well and were restored to worship in the temple. 
Jesus often simply had compassion on a real, on when he looked at a really big crowd of people, like in Matthew 9, 35 to 38. Because he looked around and saw people in desperate need of a shepherd. This is what prompts Jesus to, to, remark, to remark. You know, the harvest is plentiful. Look at there's so many people. It's not a matter of the harvest not being plentiful. It's that the workers are few. Jesus being limited and being in human form, God in the flesh, he had compassion on this huge crowd. And his heart cried, we need to pray to the Lord of the harvest to send workers to deal with this harvest. It was his compassion that drove him to have compassion on even a crowd. Today, Jesus' prayer from Matthew 9 has been answered. Anytime people like you and me respond to Jesus and his call for us to shepherd one another, to be the workers that God sends out into his field, um, then Jesus' prayer is answered. Jesus never dulls his heart or his ears to the sound of human misery. You know, we, have been, we have become cynical and dull between compassion fatigue and mistrust in authorities. All these things clutter, clutter our hearts and keep us from the compassion that God has. But God's heart never dulls, even when it's um, covered in all of this stuff. Like with the two blind men, Jesus still hears. He still stops. He still calls and engages with us. He still asks us questions and then waits to listen for our answers. He still has compassion on us. And after this, he still acts on our behalf to touch us and perhaps even heal us. All of us are sinners and sufferers and Jesus does not turn away any of us who call out to him in humility. He still hears, stops, calls, asks, listens, and has compassion on his people. So may be encouraged by these words this morning. Lamentations 3, 22 and 23. Because of the Lord's great love, we are not consumed. For his compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. Compassions never fail. His mercies are new every morning. Now take hold of this God of compassion this morning.